So I have this horrible cold that is going around. So I have cough drops and coffee, but I need a volunteer. So someone who maybe I've helped or answered a phone call, email once, can I have someone stand up, be my volunteer for this lecture? Anyone who maybe appreciates years of service to the SDPA, it's a really easy job. You'll get your volunteering done in one hour for a lifetime. No one? Come on. Okay, what's your name? Okay, Pat. When I go into an inevitable coughing fit, everyone is to look at Pat, and Pat is going to do something distracting. I'd prefer a dance, but it's up to you, Pat, okay? So remember, coughing fit, cough drop incidents, Pat is the man, okay. So I actually had a really tough time developing this lecture because I feel like for psoriasis, there's really a range of interest and understanding level. And then I looked at the agenda for this meeting and I said, oh my God, this is the psoriasis morning. We've had like two hours of psoriasis or psoriasis after that. So how do I sort of touch on everything and make it a little dynamic? This slide shows you my disclosures. I work with multiple pharmaceutical companies, Amgen, Celgene. I used to work with Abbott and Leo. I'm speaking on behalf of my own opinions today, not on any recommendations from the National Psoriasis Foundation or my company or the SDPA. So if you get nothing else from this talk, this was the message I wanted us to walk away with. That severity of disease, in my mind, is in the eye of the beholder. And the great analogy I feel like this kind of goes back to is that acne patient. You know that person who walks in for like a rash or a spot on their leg and their face looks like a pepperoni pizza combined with the movie Mask from like 1982. And at the end of the visit, you're like, would you like something for your acne? And they look at you like you have 10 heads. They're like, my, my what? Like, you know, like this situation going on. And they're like, oh, no. And then the very next room, there's someone, typically a female, crying her eyes out. And she won't leave the house because she's the elephant woman because her acne is destroying her life. And you get in there and you say, so could you show me where the pimple is? <laughs> well, you know what? That girl who's bawling her eyes out, her acne probably is severe, OK? She's actually someone you may really need to think of something a little bit more risky than we typically would by looking at her, because it's impacting her life. And that's really the way I think we should look at our psoriasis patients, that it needs to be more than just body surface area, that truly severity is in the eye of the beholder. In terms of ways to measure sever severity, and we'll talk about how you guys measure it in your clinical practice, I think the easiest is probably body surface area where you take the patient's palm. I have little midget hands, so if I use my palm, everybody would have like 25% body surface area, which if the insurance company, anyhow. Um, so you wanna use the patient's palm for 1% of their body surface area. And in an ideal world, these would be the classifications, that mild disease is considered less than 3% of body surface area, moderate is 3 to 10%, and severe is more than 10%. That's not the whole picture. We obviously need to consider location. So palms, hands of the feet, groin, genitalia really puts a patient into severe category. I would actually challenge you to do two things. On your psoriasis patients, look at their medicines and ask them, do they have any rashes, including hemorrhoids or yeast infections in your groin or your anus? Since I've started asking that, I can't tell you how many of my patients say, oh, yeah, 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 I use preparation H, I just, I have hemorrhoids, or oh, yeah, I have yeast infections a lot, I just get over-the-counter monistat, and I say, can I look, which not everybody lets me look, a lot of the times they actually have psoriasis in their groin. Also, you wanna ask about symptoms. Studies show that 60% of our psoriasis patients report that their skin is either itchy or painful. Remember the last time you had a mosquito bite and if you're anything like me, you scratched it till it bled? Imagine 60% of the time or more you're living with that itch. That would make your disease severe regardless of the body surface area. And certainly psychological impact, Dr. Gelfand was alluding to this, we know these patients have higher rates of depression, anxiety, thoughts of suicide, 
and we're going to go over some specific questions that I use in my office, okay? So how do you get that sense? How do you get that sense of what patient perception is? I'd like to get everyone's blood flowing a little bit, and at the next two slides, I'm going to ask you guys to shout out or, God forbid, come up to the microphone and share some of your pearls of wisdom, some of those great questions that you have found that you ask patients that open up Pandora's box and really give you an insight into what your patients are experiencing. Take yourself back to when you were a student. Remember, you're excited about everything. Your preceptors were geniuses. You're in that room shadowing them, and they'd ask some like great open-ended question. You'd be like, oh my god, I'm totally going to use that. Or if you've had the courtesy of you know, maybe changing jobs, and you, know, you shadow your new supervising doctor for a second before you start seeing patients, and you hear them ask some great question or make some joke you know the nurse thinks is lame because they've heard it a thousand times, but you're like, that's hilarious. I want you guys to share that with each other, these great questions, these great pearls that we have found to elicit great information from our patients. So as you're thinking about that, does anybody in their office use the Coup Mentor Scale where they're trying to rate impact on a patient's life of their disease? No? Kind of clinical study stuff? Okay. So these are some of the questions that I ask. I specifically say, does your skin itch, sting, burn, or hurt? How many people ask their psoriasis patients that? <coughs> so maybe about 25%. How much does your psoriasis bother you? Kind of hard to quantify, okay? When I get that patient who before I'm finished the sentence says, a lot. Okay, that already tells me more than you just answering. When I, that patient goes, eh, well, what do you kind of mean by that? That tells me also a different answer. Even though they're not answering the, how quickly they answer and then what they say is going to really give me a better gauge than if they didn't, didn't actually speak coherently. Is there anything you do or do not do because of your psoriasis? And that's a great question to ask. Who asked that of their patients? I get shocking answers. Oh, well. I never go to the pool. Well, my spouse has never seen me naked. Aren't you married 20 years? Yes. That's impacting their life, okay? So I love that question. Does your skin, does your psoriasis make you feel depressed? Who asked that one? We're almost afraid. It's like back in the day where we would be afraid to ask patients, do you have a plan to commit suicide? because it's going to put the thought in their mind. If I put the thought that their psoriasis should make them depressed, they'll be depressed. Obviously, we know that thinking is not true. So ask them straight out, is your psoriasis making you depressed? Or, I see you're on an SSRI. I see you're on, on Zoloft. Do you think your psoriasis contributes to your depression? Ask that. I, this is probably my favorite question of all. I am supposed to rate your psoriasis for your insurance company as mild, moderate, or severe. How would you classify it? And that's nine times out of 10 what I put down on the paper. Because yeah, if a patient maybe doesn't have in that body surface area, and I say that and they go, oh, my disease is severe. That's your answer. It's not a matrix. Your patient just told you it's severe. We're gonna talk about how patient perception is way different than clinician perception. And then I also like this question when we're talking about treatment, especially a new patient who's tried other things. Besides a cure, which I don't have yet, what do you wish I could give you as a treatment? And sometimes patients will say, oh, I just want some other creams, or if a patient immediately says, I just wish I could take a pill, okay, then we're probably talking not topical. So ask that question. It'll really guide you as to what route you need to go down. So now you've been thinking about your pearl questions you love to ask. Are there, do you guys have questions you ask patients you feel like really gives you insight into the severity of disease or the track you're going to take for their treatment? Shout them out or come up to the mic. Or does everybody do the exact same things I just did? We're so in sync. I see someone walking. I hope he doesn't have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> but maybe he did. Okay, well, good. It's a great pearl well, you use in your office. One thing that I'll um, say is um, it must be difficult to live with this disease. Sometimes that's very helpful. 
like to empathize with yeah. patients, absolutely. And usually they'll open up when that happens. I did get into trouble once when a young woman was upset that I couldn't cure her psoriasis and I said that the only way I could hope to really cure it is if I could get into her genes and she took it the wrong way, so. <laughs> Next year, I'll be doing a lecture, How Not to Lose Your Medical License. <laughs> I had a very nice patient once that I had treated for many years who said something really sweet to me. She goes, oh, you know, Abby, you've helped me so much. You know, I'm just so glad I found a provider who also has psoriasis. I said, I don't have psoriasis. <laughs> she, you don't? But you just, you were always so empathetic and you knew all about these treatments. I said, that is the, one of the biggest compliments I've had all year, but I don't have psoriasis, and I never have, and no one in my family does, so that's the sweetest thing you could have ever said to me. So really, that would be a huge compliment if your patients feel like you're that empathetic, like he's alluding to, that they assume you have the disease yourself. So let's talk about patient perception. This is one of the most meaningful bar graphs I ever saw. This was a study where psoriasis patients were participating in a clinical study, like a clinical trial. And they got all the psoriasis patients together and they said, hey, psoriasis patients, how many of you think you have moderate to severe disease, okay, marked or severe disease? 75% of the patients said, me, I have marked to severe disease. Then they brought in the doctors to evaluate the same group of patients and they said, hey, doc, how many of these patients have marked or severe disease? 22% of the patients were rated as marked to severe disease. Look at the difference between what the clinician physician was saying was marked or severe and patient perception. In my mind, if the patient is perceiving it as severe, it is severe, it deserves intervention. I gave this slide many years ago, like a local lecture, and I had a nurse practitioner uh, raise her hand and said, well, was that physicians or was that PAs and NPs doing the evaluation? I said, it was just physicians in the study. And she goes, well, we would have been closer to patient perception. I said, I'd like to believe so. However, there's a huge disparity. So just using body surface area, just using your projection of how bad their disease is, is not adequate. So let's do some patient case scenarios. So Laura is a patient of mine. She's a 28-year-old female who presents to you for itchy, flaky patches on her scalp and elbows. She reports, quote unquote, it's always been like this, and she's managed with over-the-counter tea gel shampoo, oil and keratin treatments at her hairdresser, a zinc cream she bought from the back of a magazine, and 100%, or sorry, 1% hydrocortisone and neosporin, which we all love, so we love when patients put it on their skin, uh, for bad spots. She just got insurance with a new job, which she also reports is increasing her stress level. Her other medications are generic Zoloft and orthotricycline. So in addition, this is what her scalp looks like, and you can see she has a good amount of thick hair, and it does go into this, the hair-bearing portion of her scalp, and a three-centimeter plaque on each elbow because we got her as undressed as she was willing to so we could truly look at her skin. So here are our treatment options, topical steroids, topical vitamin D, combination products, tar or acid shampoos. Who advises their patient to use either tar or acid shampoos? I do, Pentrax I like, DHS, okay. Wash your hair with it for the next month, especially ladies, especially ladies with highlights. Have fun, it sucks, it smells, it's gross. Do it so that you can tell your patients, I know I'm telling you to do this and it's not enjoyable. I don't like tea gel either. I want my beautiful salon version. Try it. Remember when you're back in school and your preceptor would be like, okay, you're gonna do an ABG. Whoever said, I wanna try one on myself. Well, we should have. So if nothing else for one month, please use tea gel, DHS, something, and see how you like it. And you don't have to have joint symptoms or be on systemic therapy or get to your doctor's office. One month of using psoriasis shampoos. Eczema laser, I just started an office that has the eczema laser, so I'm using it more. Methotrexate, you know, if this patient was significantly bothered by this disease, it'd be something we would talk about. 
but for someone who has it on scalp and elbows, I do not go to internal therapy right away. Now, if she was, again, answering those questions like, yeah, I'm depressed over it, I can't date, I can't get a job, I'm in public relations, I'm just so upset about it, yes, I would absolutely consider systemic therapy for a patient who doesn't have the quote-unquote BSA to count for severe psoriasis. So my treatment for Laura was I gave her clobetazole shampoo, and I would alternate with a tar-based shampoo because it's pretty unenjoyable to use it every single day. I gave her either Olux foam or Taclinex scalp solution based on their formula. And I often ask patients, I'm going to give you something for your scalp. Would you prefer something that looks <clears throat> foamy like a mousse or a can of whipped cream for guys? Um, or something that was more oily or something that was really watery like a drop of Visine that you would put into your scalp. And that guides my first prescription. And then again, consider eczema. Part of what I want to talk about in this, in this lecture, you know, we're talking so much about internal therapy and lasers and biologics. Let's not forget the old school stuff. I can't tell you how many new Durham graduates in their first year practice. I'm like, so did you try to inject it with some catalog? They're like, oh, yeah, maybe. So especially on the scalp, hair bearing areas that are difficult and gross to get some of these medicines on, I could put some TAC-5 into some of the plaques along the edge of her scalp. The elbows didn't really bother her that much. And then, of course, counseling on comorbidities. So little tips that I like for this patient's technically kind of considered a mild psoriasis patient. Um, I do like to start steroid sparing agents at the same time, things like Davinex. Why do I like to do that? Well, I have this fantasy, and I think it might be a fantasy, but I'm going to live with it that if I start a steroid sparing agent at the same time as a steroid, the patient can't quite discern what the workhorse is, and they'll continue to use both as I tell them to use it and not just rely only on the topical steroid. <coughs> so like a pitfall I'll get into, like with a topic, I give a steroid for two weeks in my mind to calm them down and then they come back and I add something in like Davinex or in the atopic world, maybe Elidil, and I tell them to taper off the steroid, but they don't listen. They just go right to the steroid sparing agent and they come back and they're like, oh, the first cream worked the better. So now I'm just gonna put clobetazole like in my groin and on my face endlessly <clears throat> until I have tachyphylaxis and I call Abby up and I've got striae all over and steroid-induced rosacea, and my modeling career is over, and they're going to take away my medical license, like his medical license for getting in the genes. So I fantasize that if I put them together and then I taper one away, they're going to not realize that the one I'm tapering away maybe was the little bit of the workhorse, um, and they're going to be more compliant with the steroid-sparing agent because they can't discern which one of the two is doing the job. Do you think I'm fantasizing? They know, they experiment. I don't know. I'm going to live in my fantasy till someone proves me wrong. Personally, I like creams over ointments for two reasons. They're gross. So again, I don't want my patients to abuse these steroids. If you have something just light and thin, and I see this a lot with parents of little kids, you know, so you gave some trimcinolone cream, some desinide cream, and it worked so well that mom didn't want to hear her mother-in-law say again, why do you let her walk around with that rash? So she just started putting it on like every day preventatively. So I kind of like that greasy, thick ointment version that again is a little less prone to abuse. And then more importantly, we know that ointments are more potent than creams. So we're going to deliver more active medicine to it, okay? I also love for all my patients, but definitely my psoriasis patients, I ask them to bring their prescriptions with them each and every time. I tell them it's because it helps me check for medical errors, like the pharmacist giving them the wrong medicine, and it also helps me make sure that the pharmacist gave you the largest tube that was available so you don't get cheated out of your copay. I'm really checking to see how much medicine they used. I want to know if they're really being compliant with, yeah, I use the Davinex, but it doesn't work that well. And I open it up, and the seal hasn't even been broken. Or I open it up, and it's like one fingerprint worth. Yes, it didn't work the one time you used it. I told you to use it every single day for the last four weeks. 
So I tell them to bring it with them every time and they think I'm being so like ultra on top of the pharmacist for them. Uh, additionally, you know, patients do get changed to generics all the time, so it helps me get an idea of what generics are being put out there, and also what the generic feels like. I mean, that clobetazole foam, especially the generic, you have to shake that thing really good to get it foamy, okay? So get these things in your hand so you know what they look and feel like. And then I write directly on the tubes. I actually have a Sharpie in my H exam room so I can write right on there how I want them to use it or for getting the point where they're a sophisticated patient and I'm gonna write steroid, steroid, steroid so they know which ones are the steroids. So let's talk about this more moderate patient because the title of my talk was mild, moderate, severe, okay? So let's pretend there's no joint involvement because we know these patients with joint involvement, it's gonna take us down a completely different path. So moderate disease is considered 3 to 10% body surface area. Do you all agree with that? I would be pretty darn upset at 10% body surface area. I think I would actually consider that like way severe, like devastating. How about 8%? Why, as an experiment, take eight of your palms, okay? I'd love to do this with a pen, give you all Sharpies and say you're gonna circle 8% of your body surface area, we're gonna paint it black for the day, and your job now is to pretend it itches or hurts. And may maybe go down to the bar and try to pick someone up. Okay, that would be pretty devastating. That's only moderate. Okay, let's go over a patient scenario, okay? No joint involvement. Let's say this patient has about six to 8% body surface area depending on the type of year, okay? The regimen this patient has been given is two different prescriptions of topical agents with some mild success. So they say, yeah, I'm a little less itchy, a little less scaly, but I'm still red, they're still plaque-like, and most of the lesions never go completely away. Let me go back, okay? This patient is you. I have a mean magical wand called, I'm giving you psoriasis. Everybody in this room right now is this patient. Depending on the year, you have six to 8% body surface area. You've tried two different topical agents. Let's say you tried some clobetazole and some Dovinex cream, okay? You get a little bit of improvement. What would you do next? You've got a prescription pad or you're sitting there, you came to see me because we're gonna be good and not treat ourselves. And I say, you know, what's your name? Tracy, Tracy you know, you're a PA, you have psoriasis. <sighs> what do you wanna do? So let's get ready to vote, and you tell me what you wanna do. These are what you're gonna pick, okay? So you're this patient, remember you got six to 8%, you've tried Dovinex and Clobetazole, you've come to my office, I say, Tracy, it's up to you, you're an intelligent woman, do you want to, and hopefully this will work right, go on a biologic, yeah, hey, we're voting, um, methotrexate, acetretin or seritine, light therapy, or continued topicals alone. So why are we making you guys do these voting systems? You know, the NCCPA is changing the categories of CME on us. We're gonna have to get some self-assessment CME, and it looks like the easiest way to do that is if we answer these questions in CME sessions, these are eventually gonna count for self-assessment. So you guys have to get used to voting on your phone it helps the organization continue to offer you these types of CMA. So I think that there might be more than like 40 people in this room. So let's keep voting. You have psoriasis, six to 8%. Don't make me get out a Sharpie and draw it on you. You've tried Dovinex and Clobetazole. And I mean, we're talking just two prescriptions here. How many prescriptions do we typically like to give our psoriasis patients, or if they came from somewhere else and they're starting new with us, my cream prescriptions must be a better choice. Let's give us like 10 more seconds to vote. So it looks like we're sort of split. About half the people who voted <clears throat> would do a biologic. About half the people would do light treatment, which would be the most convenient for us, right? Like we're already at the office, that poor like paralegal who has to ask off only between the hours of nine to four, because who has evening and weekend hours in dermatology? 
is going to have a lot harder time getting light twice a week. But we're there, and we're there for next year or more, so we have a little better access to it. Okay. Um, so light therapy biologics seem to be the top treatment. Someone's going to continue more topicals. Okay. Um, and then seriotane, some people picked. I kind of like my hair, so I wouldn't go on seriotane. Uh, and then methotrexate, someone felt was a good treatment option for them. For those of you that said you would go on a biologic, which would be my answer, I would go on a biologic, okay? What biologic would you pick? Would you start yourself, or Tracy says, Abby, I want to go on a biologic. Would she say, I really want to start on Enbrel, on Humira, on Remicade, or on Stellara? I love the people who pick Stellara quickly. I know why you like Stellara. So there was like 24 people who picked a biologic. I need at least 24 votes to pick what biologic on there you would choose. And I'm not, I, I think I guess I have a feeling in my head what biologic I would put myself on. So no one has an infusion center in their office or two hours. We could do charts if you have EMR. Get all your charts done during your infusion. I actually want to get like cool sculpt in my office so that while doing my EMR, I could like melt away my fat. Would that work? Use up a lot of those pads. Okay, so we're sort of split between Umera and Stellara. Couple Enroll votes. Last question, then we'll talk a little bit more. For those of you who picked your biologic, what made you pick that biologic? I know it's a whole comprehensive picture. Pick the number one reason, the most important factor for why you chose that biologic. Was it safety, overall efficacy, speed of onset, cost, or dosing frequency, or infrequency, depending on how you look at it? This is you. This is your own body. Tracy has said, I want a biologic. I said, great, what biologic do you want? She said, I want this, and her number one reason for choosing this was the fill-in-the-blank. There were some more people who chose biologic and picked. This is only 15. Five more people need to text. Okay. Oh, that was, like, pretty automatic when I said that. Okay. <laughs> so frequency of dosing. So am I interpreting that as maybe the people who picked Stellara or Humera or Enbrel feel like the infrequency of injections fits their life better? Am I interpreting that right? Okay. And then overall efficacy. Okay. And safety, interesting. That's like kind of ranking low. And then cost, we were like, forget it. Hopefully, because either we have good insurance or we would actually use the rebate cards that most of our patients aren't using. A little bit cost. Oh, someone wants to save high marks and money. Um, and speed of onset. We were cool with it. We knew we would get there eventually. Do patients have that perception? I don't know, but we're a little more educated group on this treatment plan. Interesting answers, okay? So what this shows, I mean, I kind of just put that in there because I wanted to know everybody else's answers. Um, personally, I think I probably would start Enbrel or Umera. That would be what I would start myself on, and I would be right at that biologic. I would not torture myself with topical therapy only. Um, and personally, I think I would fry up in that UV box, um, and I'm way too impatient, and it would remind me too much of a stand-up cancer coffin. Uh, so that would be you know, my treatment option for myself. Studies show that moderate to severe patients are really being undertreated, and this was shocking. So the NPF did a study and 30% of patients with moderate disease, okay, were not receiving treatment-recommended guidelines. But here's the shocking part. 36% of patients with moderate disease were receiving no treatment at all. And then severe patients, another 30% of those patients were receiving no treatment at all. Why is that? I don't know. I think some of that was probably frustration. They came to the office. They didn't feel heard. They were embarrassed. It was only their skin, and they weren't going to complain about it. 
I don't know, but that's horrible numbers. Imagine that was a diabetes study. Patients with hemoglobin A1C is a 14. 30% of them were on no diabetes treatment at all. Medicine would lose their mind, okay? So these patients are really suffering in silence. Then when they looked at what treatments these patients were getting, 50, so this is the patients that were on treatment, so not that 30% that said they're getting no treatment at all. Severe patients, 57% of them said they were given topical therapy alone. 10% or more of your body surface area. You're gonna put psoriasis creams on two, three, four times a day and have anywhere near control? Can you even imagine that? I love to like moisturize and Botox and cosmetic the heck out of myself. I cannot, I can barely keep up with like 2% of my body surface area. I could not do this on 10 or 15% of my body every day. Okay, that's, that's unbelievably shocking and unacceptable to let these patients be tortured like that. And then for these moderate patients, again, three to 10%, that's a lot of body surface area. To have 73% of them given topical therapy alone, that is completely inadequate treatment for these patients suffering in silence. Let's do another case presentation. So Michael is a 54-year-old plumber Past medical history includes an inguinal hernia repair, hypertension, high cholesterol, obesity. I think he's like the picture of what Dr. Gelfand was talking about, right? Social history reports three to four beers a week. What does that really equate to? I have like a curve on that one. You know, like anything patients tell me, alcohol consumption, I times it by like one and a half. If the Eagles are doing well, maybe like four and a half. <clears throat> he's a smoker. Medications include Lipitor, Men's One a Day, uh, Toprol XL, the generic, Triamcinolone, and then our favorite prescription in dermatology, you know he got this at primary care, generic Lotrazone for his feet because he had a rash on his feet and the primary didn't know what it was, so let's put a little bit of everything on there, okay? So he's using some Lotrazone. He's six foot, 255, blood pressure 134 for 85, so his blood pressure hypertension medicine is working. Thick scales and plaques on his knees, elbows, belt line, and scalp. It equals about 8% of body surface area. He has thick nails with some lifting, no joint involvement. Some incidental flaking found on exam in the scalp that he reports, yeah, I don't care about that. And he just uses whatever the wife puts in the shower. He reports he used a quote-unquote ton of different creams, at least three different creams, but of course he does not remember the name of them. He only knows the two that he's on right now. So what are your first steps? And there's no voting on this one. Shout out. What are the first things you want to do? You want to cream them up? Want to throw them in a light box? Excellent question. Tracy says, how much does it bother him? So you're going to talk to him. He says, you know what? My scalp doesn't really bother me, but I'm sore. Where my belt goes, I'm a plumber, I gotta get down on my knees, I gotta get into tight spaces, it hurts me while I'm working. I need something, Doc Tracy. And you say, I'm not a doc, I'm a PI, blah, blah. What, what, so what do you do? He said, gave you that history, what are you thinking? Tracy has great points. Number one, it's a long conversation, which makes these visits sometimes a little hard which I think really shows that this is gonna become a PANP-driven disease, because we have the time, the motivation to sit there. The other thing Tracy was alluding to is in her mind, before she actually even presents the patient with options, she's already thinking like a, a calculator in the back of her head, okay, could he really do methotrexate? He takes alcohol, he's already on a statin, we've got some liver function issues. She's already kind of computing all the potential options in the, in the top of, or the back of her head as she's talking about it with the patient. So my treatment for Michael, number one, I called the PCP. He is on a beta blocker. Let us not forget the medicines we learned 10 years ago make psoriasis worse beta blockers, calcium channel blockers. I guarantee you, you can do this as a performance improvement project for those of you who are already designers for the NCCPA. Pull 100 charts of your psoriasis patients, scan and see who is on a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker, I guarantee you're gonna find someone. Because we're so busy and we're forgetting and there's all these hypertension medicines that have come out now 
beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, lithium, they are gonna make psoriasis worse. Let's not forget the basic psoriasis tenants that we should have learned 10 or 15 years ago in PA school because we're so concentrated on the latest and greatest, okay? So you called, you changed the beta blocker with the primary, counseled him about comorbidities. He's heavy, he smokes, alcohol, he's a man, he's got hypertension, he has psoriasis. What are some of the things I gave you in the history that would also make you want to carefully screen this patient for psoriatic arthritis and tell him, okay, you may not have it today, but in seven years, which is the average amount of time or less that psoriatic arthritis develops, if you have a swollen, inflamed, or tender joint, you need to call me right away. What were some of those historical factors that would make you want to educate that patient? Nail involvement, cobbler's phenomenon on his belt line, where it was rubbing, that's a risk factor for developing psoriatic arthritis at some point. Tracked down his old records. I counseled him about alcohol intake. What does that mean? Going back to that first statement, alcohol makes psoriasis flare, particularly beer, okay? So I'm gonna tell that patient that, and I can't tell you how many psoriasis patients have seen a dermatologist for 20 years, and I tell them that. Now, you know, no one has ever told me that. Alcohol makes psoriasis worse. For Michael, because we were changing the beta blocker and I wanted to see what happened during the washout period, and he does like his beer and alcohol, and he's an Eagles fan with season tickets. He was not going to give up beer. We decided to do light therapy. Additionally, because he is self-employed, he's his own plumber, he had a little more option availability to really stop in on Tuesdays and Thursdays for 15 or 20 minutes to get light therapy. So we ended up doing narrowband UVB therapy for him. I gave him a tar shampoo to use like a body soap. I gave him a vitamin D derivative, clobetazole foam for the scalp, okay? And he's gonna start off doing it twice a day for two weeks. Um, areas like elbows, I gave him the option to wrap it up with saran wrap for the first two weeks to give like a kick start and then decrease to weekends only. Remember, look at the entire patient, rule out infection, especially in these young new presenting patients, lithium, beta blockers, anti-malarial agents. And then this has also been a little pearl that hidden steroid use. For me, the most complicated hidden steroid use to ask about is those orthopods injecting steroid in those joints. I mean, why are you rebounding? You've been you know, doing great. I don't understand why the psoriasis keeps rebounding in this cycle. Are you on any new medicines? They're not gonna say, yes, I'm on intralesional catalog for my tennis elbow. Tell me, you know, have you had any shots? Have you seen any other doctors? Tell me what's happening. Can't tell you how many surprising ones that said, oh yeah, yeah, I've had this, or oh, my knee, or oh, my trigger finger has been injected by my orthopod. Oh, this is steroids, okay? So remember, look at that old school stuff that we miss. So I put him in the light box, I gave him topicals. Four months later, they did change his beta blocker in that meantime. He has now spent about $360 on copays for light in my office. Another $100 on copays at the pharmacy. He's down to about 4% body surface area. The lesions are technically resolved, but have left him with post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation or pinkness on his knees, which still bother him. This is the other factor I find in psoriasis. For some patients, what back in 2000 would have been awesome, now actually just makes them want more. So like back in 2000, especially on topical therapy alone, if I'd gotten someone about 50% improvement, I was kind of patting myself on the back. Now patients are like, eh, it kind of makes me think, you guys here for the Merveso lecture and that patient who considered himself a failure and he was like a lot less red. I find this a little bit in my psoriasis patients. In some ways I've set like a new bar of expectations. So now he says, you know what, now that I'm kind of getting better, we're talking about it, my scalp kind of does bother me and my nails do bother me too. I've realized when I shake people's hands, they kind of are looking at my nails. So now what? Would you start him on, you gotta vote, a biologic such as the first four that are listed. Oh, I guess maybe we pre-voted. I don't know, I guess it was an old slide. Um, the point is, I wanted to say that again, methotrexate, acetretin, because of the alcohol intake, would be something you'd have to talk to him about stopping. 
and then discussing with him which of the biologics. I don't use a lot of Remicade, but um, I don't think that would have fit this patient's uh, lifestyle. I started him uh, on Enbrel. We continue to experiment with different topicals based on what cards were in my closet uh, and what his insurance would allow or not. Um, and then once he was controlled, I really had to give him some big time lectures about control. And what this alludes to is we're not doing a great job <coughs> with our biologic patients in seeing if they're really getting their prescriptions filled. Has anyone ever gone with like a specialty pharmaceutical company and asked for reports to track how often they're refilled? I have no one PA who did this. <coughs> I feel like I probably have patients who are stretching out the dosing interval way more than what's appropriate, either on purpose or because they're forgetting. And then when they flare, they call me and see me and we have this discussion or they lose insurance and we sort of have this discussion or they've missed their appointment, they need refills and they come in and I'm like, okay, I filled the form today, you know, how many pens do you have at home? And they're like, I only have three more pens. Three, three more pens? When did I see you last? I see you eight months ago. How the hell do you have three pens, okay? These patients are really probably stretching it. And how that's going to impact the long-term efficacy of these medicines is going to be an issue. So we need to get better at how we track our patients actually injecting. If I had like a whole lot of free time and an awesome nurse, if anybody has an awesome nurse that they like want me to steal from them, I'm all about it, who would maybe have like patients do a calendar or work with a specialty pharmacy who agrees to give you refill reports or do no refills and have the patients call in the office every time they want a refill. I don't know, but how many of you are really tracking it the way we have to track our Accutane refills? Probably not a lot of us, okay? And I think it's actually really important. So second to last patient, 42-year-old female, middle school English teacher, plaques in her palms and soles of her feet. <clears throat> Treatment options for this patient include everything I put on this slide. So here we're sort of presenting, finally, someone who's not the typical plaque psoriasis patient. This is more Palmer plantar psoriasis. If you were to put a Palmer plantar psoriasis patient on a biologic, which biologic would you choose? This kind of, and as you vote, I'll talk. This throws me back to like the Raptiva days right? Because I got totally into the concept that Reptivo is maybe going to be better for this. Did you guys all tell? Yeah, so I was like the only provider of eight that who had like a whole bunch of Reptiva patients on in my office when I got that great like news alert. I was like, oh my god, I've got to call eight patients. And none of them had PML, but seven out of those eight really were doing great and were like totally upset. They're like, oh my god, I'm going to hoard my Reptiva. How can we get more? I'm going to give you something else. So I bought into that, and then I had this like class of Palmer plantar psoriasis patients that I had to experiment with other biologics. And I did this sort of just trial and error and came up with what my biologic out of the patients I've tried over the years, plus this like seven, eight of them, what I had to switch them over to. So Enbrel kind of came up number one, Umera number two, Stellara, which I have to admit I have not tried for Palmer plantar psoriasis. For whatever reason, oh, okay, half and half. So whatever reason, right about that time as I was like desperately trying and experimenting, I personally have had more success with Humira for Palmer plantar psoriasis. Just my clinical experience. I've had some success with Enbrel, but Humira has become my go-to medicine for Palmer plantar psoriasis. For Anna, <clears throat> we did uh, do halbetazole ointment under saran wrap. And a great question patients often ask me, because saran wrap is gross, they'll say, can I just do a sock or an oven mitt? <clears throat> and I'll say, you can, but for the first two weeks, I'd like you to put saran wrap on first, and then you can still put the glove or the oven mitt or whatever you want. Think of what saran wrap does in the microwave to your food. It really keeps in all that moisture and kind of makes it hot and gross. Well, I kind of want that hot and gross environment to soften it up so we really get a lot of rapid absorption those first couple days. Dovinex cream during the day, and then 
again, an oldie but a goodie. I would not go right to a biologic for a patient with palmar plantar psoriasis who can come into my office and try PUVA therapy, so a non-systemic agent. Um, topical oxysorline that she soaked in and then PUVA for 16 weeks actually controlled her very, very well. And then we continued with topical Davinax and then pulsed steroid under occlusion. And then if she had a difficult spot, I would use a little intralesional Kenalog. Palmer plantar psoriasis and pustular psoriasis, I actually think does best with some degree of intralesional Kenalog. Remember that oxysorline is pregnancy category C, so you wanna discuss this with your patient. All right, last patient case scenario, and then we'll have just some open discussion and potty break. So Mary is a 56-year-old female. She's on Umera for plaque psoriasis that you started her on. She's stable and controlled for the last two years. Yay, we did it, okay? She uses clobetazole spray maybe once a day for up to five days occasionally for the occasional patch or plaque. She's a former runner, former tennis player, and because she was so active and healthy, she now needs to get bilateral knee replacement at 56. I knew exercise was bad for you, okay? Her and her surgeon contact you. They say, what should Mary do with her Umera, both before and after therapy? And the surgeon, who you can barely get on the phone, says, oh, do whatever that, that derm, derm says. You ask them when you stop and start. They have no input for you. This is a question from a previous one. Oh no, okay, I guess I'll have to do it raising hands. So, how many of you would continue her Humira right up to the surgery? Some. How many would stop two weeks before surgery? Some. How many would stop a month before surgery? Six weeks before surgery? Eight weeks before surgery? More, okay. How many, okay, so you stopped her, or some didn't. She has the surgery, everything's great, no complications. When would you tell her she can inject again? A week later, raise your hand. Some, two weeks later, you more. Three weeks later, she can inject. Four weeks later, she can inject. That's getting the most hands. Five weeks later, she can restart. Six weeks or more. So a lot of people didn't vote, but there seemed to be about two to three weeks before seemed to be the most popular answer for stopping, and about four weeks after, a month post-op, you guys would restart her, okay? There are no studies looking at psoriasis patients on biologics and surgery versus psoriasis patients who stop their biologic. And what we're looking at surgically is infection, wound healing, and complication rate. The only studies we have are patients with RA on biologics or methotrexate and surgery. Well, what do we know about our RA patients? They're sicker than our psoriasis patients. They're more immune compromised, they've been on more DMARDs, they have more infections. So it's really hard to extrapolate out what we're supposed to do for these psoriasis patients who have upcoming surgeries. And the NPF has adopted the Canadian guidelines, and the Canadian guidelines say that if you're on a TNF blocker, which I mean, we know not all the biologics block TNF, but I think you'd be safe putting them into a biologic category, should be discontinued for a period of four half-lives prior to surgery. How many of us thought it was probably five? NPF says four prior to, to surgery. And here's the half-lives. So for those of you who use a lot of Stellara, how the hell, heck, do you do four half-lives off of these medicines prior to surgery? 80 days? You really tell them to stop that long and are they cool with it? I imagine them like breaking into my derm office to get their Stellara. Do you guys find it's a difficult conversation? Or you guys don't do the four half-lives? You maybe hold like one month? Maybe someone will get brave and answer that for me. There was a study that looked at RA patients, okay, that fell into three categories. So these are patients with RA, 
that were either on methotrexate both before and after surgery. They didn't stop. And that was another category I should have asked. Who would have not stopped her biologic at all? Is there anyone who would have not stopped at all, given her no holiday during surgery? So they gave these patients no holiday on surgery. By the way, who's stopping methotrexate prior to surgery? I know, but I think we're supposed to. So kept these patients, these RA patients, on methotrexate before and after surgery. The second group, they stopped the methotrexate for surgery. And then as a control, they had a third group of RA patients that were not on methotrexate at all, okay? They were all getting elective orthopedic surgery, similar to Mary's knees, okay? Here's what happened. Here's what they found out from these patients. There was no difference in the first two groups. Patients who continued on methotrexate the entire time with no holiday and patients who they stopped and restarted had no differences in infection or post-op infection or complication rate. What group did have the highest infection post-op rate? The patients not on systemic therapy. Which raises the question that Dr. Gelfin was sort of talking before, if patients have a dysregulated immune system, if they have systemic chronic inflammation, are those patients actually at the highest risk for post-op infection? And that is what this study is suggesting. A second study done in 2005 suggested that RA patients on traditional TNF therapy, anti-TNF therapy, again, had a lower post-op infection rate than TNF inhibitor naive patients. Really, again, alluding to the fact that this is a systemic autoimmune dysregulation. My answer to these questions, I rarely do a true four half-lives, unless I'm very worried about a lawyer calling me. I base it on how healthy the patient is and how dirty the surgery is. So a relatively clean surgery, like a knee replacement or something arthroscopic or some breast implants, I'm probably not gonna give that long of a holiday versus the 400 pound patient who had pneumonia four months ago who's having gastric bypass and having their dirty old bowel rerouted, okay? So I really do it on a case by case basis, but if you're nervous or you don't have good physician backup, you have guidelines that would say four half-lives are the recommended break from therapy. So that was my little kind of golden nuggets, my interesting facts about psoriasis on our psoriasis morning. Does anyone have questions or golden nuggets that you guys have learned out in clinical practice? And I'm sorry, I have to get up at the mic or just shout it. I'm gonna close my eyes. Questions? Yes, Tracy. Yeah. Right, great, great question. For those of you who couldn't hear her, her question was in that graph I showed you where those moderate and severe patients were maybe only on topical therapy or no therapy alone, was it possibly because they were non-compliant with things like their TB test or getting back in the office for their Stellara injection? Probably, it did not ask them why. Like, is this because this is all your provider offered? Is it because you're non-compliant? Is this because this is all your insurance will cover? Is it because you have a $2,000 deductible and you don't have two grand to put into two months of that first biologic? It did not break down some of those factors. I wish in dermatology we were as good in empowering our patients like in oncology to be responsible for following along these routines in particular biologics. And I was just talking to the NPF about maybe doing a webinar for their members about how to get the most out of your office visit. And part of it, of course, I want to talk about is like, you know, my hands on the door, they don't, you know, roll out a list as long as Santa's wish list. And they're like, oh, and I wanted to talk about these other things. Um, but I also want to put on there ways to empower them. And I really think, and this is maybe fantasy again, I'd like to empower our patients on two things. To understand that getting the drug is partially their responsibility. The days have passed where I have the time, office staff, and memory 
to be able to advocate them for getting these medicines. They need to help themselves out with getting the actual medicines. And then two, staying on top of the tests. I can tell you, and I just joined an, a new office where they use biologics, and I'm going through, and I'm like, you know, they haven't had a TB test in two years. And my doc's like, oh, darn, could you make sure you order that? So yeah, they need to keep a better log of those tests, and we need to explain to them. I can't tell you how many long-term psoriasis patients on biologics from other providers all say, do you know why you need to get a TB test? 90% of them say no. And then when I ask, do you know what TB is? A lot of them say no. And then when I explain to them, not only is it debilitating, but technically the Department of Health could put you in forced isolation, then they're like, oh, I'm worried about my job making that copay. I'm gonna be like in forced isolation. So put it into their perspective so they understand why they need to do these things. But great point. Lauren? Yep. A uh, little pearl. Um, you need to know where you work in the country and what the cultural you know, um, landscape is. Because where I work in Pennsylvania, if you say alcohol alone, you will not get any answers about beer. You have to specify alcohol and beer. So you need to know where you work and where, you know, what your population expects from you. So. Yeah, so, you know, a gr great topic. A lot of people really, and I live in Pennsylvania too, don't consider beer alcohol. I actually met, like, a recovered alcoholic who says, you know, I don't drink alcohol. I just have beer. <laughs> okay, that's what you say. <laughs> so just last week, I had a patient I started on Humira three months ago, and she has a lot of self-confidence back. And she goes, by the way, I'm getting implants in how many months? what do I need to be on and off my biologic for? Um, so I was just wondering if it, it was a clean surgery and she's healthy, what you would do before and after. And then transitioning from biologic to biologic, the drug reps don't always, can't always say, what's your magic numbers? Yeah, for sure. Again, young, healthy patient, relatively clean surgery. You said she's on Umera. I honestly would probably have her inject two weeks beforehand, skip her dose, and I would say call me or come see me three to four weeks after your surgery. The nice thing about both Enbrel and Umera is we also have a, a pretty good distance from when they're gonna start to flare. And I would give her that caveat though, if you're flaring, your joints hurt, or in your incisions, you're seeing some questionable psoriasis, come see me, I put a chart, a pop-up in your note that says, if this patient calls, I want to see her. And then we'll judge it based on that. But I think that's probably far enough that you wouldn't run into trouble. Hi, I was just gonna point out, I work primarily with pediatrics and trying to judge severity of disease from the patient's perspective can be a little bit difficult. I found the highest yield question to ask usually is, do people at school make fun of you because of your skin? Which is really kind of awkward to ask, but a lot of kids will just tell you, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, until you ask that question, and then they fall apart, so. Yeah, and that's a great point, especially in kids. It is really hard to gauge perception of disease, again, even sort of with acne, and then a difficult topic, which we could do a whole other hour about, is you know how do you handle that kid that's kind of not even really giving you an answer, but mom is all over, you know, yes, it bothers him, and yes, he's gonna get made fun of, and yes, my mother-in-law won't leave me alone, and obviously mom wants therapy, but what does that you know, mean to the kid? I, I don't know, but that's a great question. Does, you know, do, do you get made fun of? You know, are you embarrassed by your psoriasis? Um, you know, what do you, I'd say a kid, you could say, what do you wish your treatment was like? Um, and then going back to your question about transitioning from biologics to biologics, and maybe I'm living in an ivory castle and I'm gonna get screwed on this, but I leave very little space between biologics. I don't wanna truly overlap, but if I'm changing from biologic to biologic, it's typically to me because they're getting inadequate response. I'm not a big fan of changing biologics just because dosing frequency is different if it worked. Because number one, they do work differently. If you're on something that works, stick with it. And number two, if injecting once a week is just too much for you, suck it up. Join me back in 2000 when all my options were was to kill your internal organs or put you in a light box and you would have killed to just inject yourself once a week. Or go out and meet a diabetic patient 
who's testing and injecting themselves three to six times a day and tell me once a week is too damn much for you. You can stick with it if this is working for you. However, if it's not working and we're switching to another biologic, I really butted up to almost when their next injection was due for that drug. Do other people give a longer holiday? Like let's say they were on uh, Umera, it's just not working, okay? They're really still out of control and you were to decide to move to Stellara because it is going to work in a different way than, than Umera and Enbrel would. How much space would you give it? I do it like literally two weeks later if I can give them their Stellara injection. Is that what other people are doing? Is anybody saying, oh, you've got to do four half-lives before we start the Stellara? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. Any other questions? Let's see how, oh, I did pretty good. No coughing fits. Let's give it up to you for offering to dance. All right.